If you turn with me to the scripture, it's also printed in your bulletins, Genesis chapter 32, verse 22 to 32. This is a story, the climax of the story of Jacob, the saga that is known as Jacob. One of the great stories of the Bible. This is a turning point in Jacob's life. And he's a remarkable character in the Old Testament. And, you know, I haven't had a chance to really break down the background of Jacob's story, so we're going to have to unpack it a little bit today. But this is the resolution of his life. And uh, after this event, Jacob's a changed man. Before he was just a religious man. Before he was just a superstitious man. Before he was just avoiding God. But after this event, after this passage, Jacob's a changed man. He draws near to God. Let's read Genesis chapter 32, verse 22 to 32. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. And this is God's word. It's a passage about Jacob, and he's wrestling, and he's wrestling all night. He's going toe-to-toe with God. He's face-to-face with God. And the real question here that, as you read this text, it's how do you stand in the presence of a holy God? What does it really mean to discover spiritual truth? What does it mean to, to experience deep spiritual reality? Rudolf Otto, he's a, a 20th century, early 20th century German philosopher. He, his seminal piece of work was called The Idea of the Holy, his most powerful work. And mainly what he said is that whenever people come into the presence of the holy, the presence of the numinous, the holy, there was danger. There's peril. You have to enter. You have to approach at the risk of death. In other words, in order to come near God, it's perilous to draw near. It's dangerous to draw near. God always appears as a fire. He always appears because he consumes like a fire. It's beautiful to behold. But as you come close, he consumes When you draw near to God, you're riding the lightning. You're you're riding the storm. You're riding the hurricane. And Jacob sees this. He meets God here in this text. He doesn't see God in a burning bush. He doesn't see God in a fire cloud, but God is a wrestler. So there's three points. Three points we're going to learn today. Very simple. The story, the climax, the resolution. Jacob's story what we're going to learn through the climax of the story, which is this text, 
and then the conclusion, the resolution, how that resolves our story. So first, I'm going to give you some background, Jacob's story. This is the story of Jacob's life, because you can't understand the importance of this text. You can't understand the climax of the story until you see the nature, the story, the whole of the story of Jacob and his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham. From the beginning, God calls Abraham, the father of Isaac, and he says, this world is broken, but I've chosen one of your descendants to be the one who's going to save, to be the one who's going to redeem the whole world. And he says, through your generation, every generation that follows after your generation, every child that's born, there will be one child that will become the child. He will be the savior for his people in his generation. And generation after generation will come and follow until the Messiah, the one person who will come at the end, who will redeem the world, will be born through your family, through your descendants. And through Abraham, Isaac is born. At a very old age, Isaac is born. This is the child of promise. And through Isaac's family, then, the world is going to be redeemed. But then, through Isaac's family, a conundrum. Twins are born. You have Esau, who's born first. And Jacob, clutching at the heel of Esau, he comes out. And they're twins, born at the same time. Who do you choose? Now, Rebekah. The wife of Isaac, she knows. There's a prophecy through Rebecca, and she says the elder will serve the younger, meaning the younger one will be the one. The younger one will be the one. And you see this. Rebecca gets it. She gets the story. But as they grew up, you see Esau. He's impulsive. He's impetuous. He's rugged. He's shallow. He's hot-tempered. He's not that bright. He's a normal man, right? Esau gets the blessing. He's the one that Isaac loves. Esau is the one that Isaac favors. Jacob, he's much less a man's man. And, you know, society is covered, especially at that time, society was governed by the law of primogeniture, meaning that the elder was always the one that was expected to lead. And uh, he, the elder one was going to be the one that's favored. So it was a cultural thing. Isaac, he, the father of Jacob, he hides behind uh, the culture. He hides behind society. He favors Esau, and so he plans. He's now getting his affairs in order. He's at a very old age. His eyes have grown very, very weak. And even though God says the younger will be the one that will be blessed, Isaac, in essence, is saying, no, no, I favor Esau. And as the age is now, he's he's preparing, he's getting his affairs in order. He's resisting God. He's hiding behind his culture. And he prepares to bless Esau, the elder. Now, Jacob, he knows. Jacob knows Esau is the one that's standing between me and my destiny, I'm the younger. The prophecy was for me. And he resents his father. He, and he's vindictive. And what does he do? He and his mother, they plot. He disguises himself as Esau. And in an elaborate way, he comes and, and he comes before Isaac. And Isaac is very weak in the eyes. And what does he say? He says, who are you? He says, I'm Esau. He lies, and he steals the blessing because Isaac blesses him there, and he, and he steals the blessing, and he runs off. And moments later, what happens? Esau then arrives in the same manner, in the same fashion. Esau arrives, 
And the moment Isaac hears Esau, it says in the text that he trembled violently. He's trembling. God is coming near. He's riding the hurricane. He's wrestling. And he says, who did I just bless? And Esau realizes what has happened, and he says, no, take it back. This was stolen from you. Take it back. Bless me anyway. And Isaac gets it. Finally, he gets it. And he says, your brother was blessed, and indeed, he will be blessed. He could have taken it back after all was stolen from him, but he realizes. He gets it. But that doesn't do much for Esau. Now Esau is vindictive. Now he's angry. Now he is, he's vowed to kill his brother because Esau wasn't so submissive. And so now Jacob, instead of trusting in God's grace, if you look at it from his perspective, what's happened? He's taken matters into his own hands. He's now become the impetuous one. He's now become the impulsive one. He's now become the vindictive one. He's the one that's resentful. And just like the family that he has in some ways resented and vowed not to be alike, he's now on the run. He's running. And uh, he's got no home, no place to sleep, no place to rest his head, and sometimes probably even wondering, I mean, is this blessing really real? I mean, I stole it. I stole it. And I've cheated for this blessing. Is it, am I really blessed? And he understands the blessing, but really, is this how you get it? All his life, he's been working and striving on his own, his own efforts. He's trying to earn the blessing, many times manipulating people. And he's really living up to his name because his name, Jacob, means deceiver, the one who comes from behind. And so he's tired and he's restless and he's, he's sometimes out with no home, no place to rest his head, and he has a vision at times. And in this vision, it's known, uh, historically known or, or culturally known in many ways as Jacob's ladder. And there he realizes God really is pl- present. And so he tries to make a deal with God, always trying to come from behind, always trying to manipulate, always trying to negotiate. He says, God, if you give me wealth, if you give me all the things that I want, I will worship you. And he calls the place Bethel, the house of God. But he's restless. Over time, he starts to amass wealth, Jacob. He's got two wives, 11 sons, flocks and herds at his disposal. And he earned it all on his own. But he's restless. And he's tired. And God appears to him and says, you know, you've been running for a long time. It's time for you to go back home. It's time for you really, to meet your destiny. It's time for you to face Esau. And Jacob's been preparing. By the time you get to chapter 31, he's praying. He doesn't resist. He starts to make his way back. And he's still trying to figure out. He knows what's going to happen. He's going to meet Esau, and Esau has a group of 400 people ready and advancing towards Jacob. So what does he do? We now arrive to chapter 32. He's now trying to, he sets up a process by which he's going to appease his brother Esau to win him back, try to get under his good graces. Wave after wave he sends now gifts to his brother Esau. And the gifts follow a message, followed by a message that Esau, you are the Lord, I am your servant. Wave after wave, 
gift after gift. And he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be last, and I'm going to appear before my brother, and I'm going to bow. And basically what he's planning to do is submit himself, get under his good graces, still calculating an escape, because that's what deceivers do. They're calculating an escape. He's trying to find a way to pacify his brother, who's so angry, so bitter, so resentful. And we get to chapter 32. He divides his family into two camps. And he sends them basically in fear because he figures if Esau actually attacks him, we're right about verse 7 now, if Esau attacks him, either he's going to attack Jacob and his family can escape or he's going to attack his family and Jacob can escape. One way or another, one part of his family will continue on. And he sends these gifts and waves, flattery. And he sends everybody off, his family, all of his possessions, And he's really in the context of the Jabbok River. The Jabbok River was kind of known as like this place that mimicked the Garden of Eden, this beautiful place, this beautiful, perfect, serene place. And yet, he's at war. He's at war in his heart. And he sends all of his possessions. And now he thinks he's alone. Finally, he's alone. What is he going to do when he's alone? He's going to prepare. He's going to try to get some rest. He's going to calculate his thoughts. He's already started praying, so he's going to pray. Finally thinks he's alone. And what happens? He's not alone. That's the background. The second point, then, is the climax. I'm going to walk through this climax verse by verse. Jacob is in the dark. And it's the night before this epic confrontation in his life. Everything is gone. He's completely alone. Verse 24, he's completely alone. And in his reflection, he realizes he's not alone. All of a sudden, a man is there. And this man wrestles him point for point. They go all night. They must have been evenly matched, which means that every single time Jacob pulls a move to get the upper hand, what happens? There must have been a counter. Why do we know that? Because the wrestling match goes all night. I was on the wrestling team when I was younger. If you've ever wrestled or done anything like that, Wrestling matches don't go more than a few minutes. Why? Because you counter. The person who has the upper hand is the one who schemed, thought it through. It's a chess match. And at some point, one person gets the upper hand, upends the other person. Sometimes there's a little give. Most of the time, there's a lot of take. You never take a break when you're wrestling. And in those short two or three minutes, point, 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 you win. It's over. In this match, they go point for point. They're countering each other. Every single time Jacob thinks he has the upper hand, there was a counter down to sapping out the very ounce, the last ounce of his energy. They go all night, all night. And this man comes, and it says in the text, if you actually look at the text in verse 24, the man comes and he wrestled Jacob. The text is literally saying that the man Jacobed Jacob. He actually came from behind. For the first time in Jacob's life, or actually not the first time, but in this physical confrontation, he's literally been upended. He's been countered from the get-go. He's been caught off guard. He's met his match, point for point. Now, what does it mean to meet God? What does it mean to meet God? What does it mean to really experience spiritual reality? One thing means you have to be utterly and totally alone. Meeting God has to be a personal experience. It has to be deeply personal. Now, some people say, now, Donnie, for the last three years, 
You've been telling me that this is all about community, that we walk in community, that we're transformed as community, that we, that we serve the city and come before God and worship all in the context of community. You're actually contradicting yourself. And I'm submitting to you that actually, in order to come before God as true community, you have to first come to him personally. You have to come before him personally. You can have all these things. Think about it. You can, you can come to Sunday worship. Sunday worship is absolutely necessary. Community is absolutely necessary. Communion is absolutely necessary, but they are not sufficient. They will mean, they will only be a shadow of an experience if you haven't come before God personally. Why is that? Your personal experience is not antithetical to community. It only deepens real community. It only deepens genuine community. Why is it so important? Think about the true crises in your life. Think about the true crises in your life. My mother recently was, there was a, a scare recently. Um, she uh, was possibly diagnosed uh, for, with cancer. And um, if you think about what happens when you're diagnosed with cancer, you know, you have this tumor that's growing inside you. And everybody is supportive. Everybody's going to pray for you. Our church prayed for my mother. We, everybody's prayerful. Everybody's, and they're going to say, we're going to be with you to the end. But if you think about it, when you're in that operating room, you're alone. Any true crisis leaves you totally and utterly alone. You are completely alone in the deepest core of all of your problems. And so, unless God is actually personal in your life, Sunday worship, communion, these things will only be a shadow. Because all of the things that we struggle with, our wrestling in life, is utterly alone. And that's why we have to meet God alone. Now, Jacob, he's saying, what is this? You know, tomorrow I was, I was expecting to wrestle a man that has ruined my life, but I'm spending the entire night wrestling this man, this stranger. And in verse 25, the man realizes that he cannot overpower Jacob, and he maims him with a touch. Jacob is totally maimed. Now remember, this is all in the context. Tomorrow he is going to be meeting his destiny. He's going to be confronting. This is a, his life, his climax to this point. And now he's been left totally maimed, utterly helpless. What does that tell you? An encounter with God. Totally, utterly alone. But it's wrestling. It's a wrestling. It requires constant focus. It requires constant countering, constant fighting, constant arguing. And it requires constant suffering. Jacob here, uh, he starts out, he's focusing. Why? He's wrestling. If you're in a wrestling match, you're not going to be thinking about what you're going to be eating tomorrow morning for breakfast. I can guarantee you. You're gonna be, it's life and death. He's focused. How many times have you heard a friend of yours or even yourself, at some point in your life, you've been living your life a certain way and all of a sudden you go to your friend and you realize or you hear from a friend, you know, I think I'm going to start going back to church. I think I'm going to start, I'm going to try out what church is. What's God doing through your struggles? He's focusing you. Now, next, there's a countering. There's an arguing. How many times have you seen, you know, Jacob, he's, he's being countered by this man, and, you know, they're wrestling all night, and, and to the point of weariness. I mean, he's really becoming weary and fatigued through this process. Think about it this way. A God that doesn't argue with you, a God that doesn't fight with you, a God that doesn't say, come, let us reason together, doesn't exist. That kind of God, a God that doesn't do that does not exist. It's a figment of your imagination. 
If you ever, if you know, you know, most of us here are 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 young adults, uh, college students, and beyond. If you've ever gone on a date in your life, right? What happens? What is it like when you go on a date and the person is always agreeing with you? It's going to be a very short date. It's boring. It's it's mundane. It's very bland and it's dull. You're going to come back. And you're going to say, you know, we didn't talk about anything substantial. There was nothing that was really, uh, uh, there was no climax of the discussion. I didn't really, there was no interest. A God that doesn't argue with you. A God that doesn't counter you at times. Think about it. A lot of times, think about how you first came to know Jesus. Your first experience with God. Think about a close friend of yours that recently came to God. They usually start out by saying, well, I don't understand why it says in the Bible this. I don't agree with that. You know, and before, you know, some people have very different reactions to that kind of response, but let's take a look at the question. You know, I don't like the way God said this. Why does God always sound like this? I don't understand why he does this, but doesn't do this. Why is there suffering in the world? God is so good. Now, those very same people, when God then counters and says, well, I don't like the way you live your life. I don't like the way you conduct your lifestyle. I don't like the way you do the things that you do. And I think you should be doing this. We have problems with that. We like a God who wants to agree with us all the time. And that kind of God doesn't exist. You know why? That kind of God will never change you. That kind of God will never fulfill you. That kind of God will never deepen you. Deepen you of the reality and the truths that you need. The relationship will not be real with that kind of a God. It will never be dynamic, you know, What's going on here? Jacob is wrestling. The very essence of this passage, God has drawn near to Jacob. Jacob is still running, but God has drawn near. And as God has drawn near, Jacob is in utter agony. Why? Because he spent all night countering. And he's focused with his mind and with his heart and with his soul and with his strength. And the wrestling as a result is suffering. His hip has been completely wrenched, and yet it says, and the man continued to wrestle him. Wrestling is suffering. The man gradually wore Jacob down. All night, Jacob had to really be brought to a point of complete, total, utter weakness. Total weakness. Before he actually really started to wake up. And here in this passage, he starts to wake up. His core values, his core beliefs, the things that he has clung to all of his life had to be rattled, had to be shaken. There was a quaking in his life. That's the wrestling match. That's the only thing that's going to make him wake up. Verse 25, this is the wake-up call. Let's read verse 25. When, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Here's the turning, turning point in Jacob's life. Imagine the horror. All of a sudden, you know, they're, they're wrestling all night. The man dislocates all of a sudden Jacob's hip because he couldn't overpower him. And the Hebrew word here is not, you see the word hip if you have the NIV, but it's actually the thigh. If you look at one side, it's the hip, but if you actually turn right to the other side, it's actually your inner thigh. It's actually your loins. And, and it's completely wrenched. It throws his leg completely paralyzed. And Jacob is reeling, and he's in agony. He's in excruciating pain, but he's still wrestling the man. 
down to the ground he's wrestling in. And he's clinging now, he's clinging onto the man, clutching his leg. He's saying, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Up until this point, Jacob thought he had the upper hand. There were clues. There were clues that he had the upper hand. The man couldn't overpower him. The man later on says, let me go. Let me go, it's daybreak. There were clues that he actually had the upper hand, but all of a sudden, with a touch, everything turns on its head. Jacob has realized that this man, pretty much all night, has been giving me the minimal amount of energy to just keep me going. He's wasted away the most of my strength. That at the touch of his hand, actually in the text, in the actual literal language, it says that it was really a touch of his hand. He threw out his entire leg. The horror of what he's now starting to realize. Can you imagine the horror slowly starting to set into his life? And it's dawning on him literally, and it crystallizes when. Verse 26, the man says, let me go, for it is daybreak. It's the ultimate clue. Why? Because at night, you can't see. No matter how close you are wrestling with somebody, you can't see their face. Daybreak is approaching. The man says, you have to let me go. Trust me, you have to let me go. It's daybreak. Jacob realizes. Now Jacob knows who he's wrestling. He's staring in the face of God. It's not just as matched. He is overmatched. He is literally riding the hurricane. He is riding the storm. He is riding the lightning. And God has appeared and has wrestled him to the ground, threw him out, threw out his leg, and realized now the, the horror at daybreak. And in seeing who he's wrestling, Jacob has realized who he really is, the real problem of his life. Up until this point, up until this very moment, Jacob realized that everything that he thought in his life, his entire interpretive grid, he interpreted life in the context of all that has happened in his past. Jacob has interpreted his entire life in the context of Esau. Esau was to blame for every one of his troubles. Isaac, his father, and his love, the resentment that he's held, has been the cause and the source of all of his troubles. It is something that he has looked at from the time that he has run. From the, probably from the moment he was born. He's been struggling with Esau from the moment he came out of the womb. And all of a sudden, this one instance, everything's been turned around. The man says, let me go. You know, before he was trying to wrestle with God. He was trying to negotiate with God. He was trying to control God. He was trying to get the upper hand over God. In fact, you saw that throughout the course of his life. At Bethel, he says, God, if you give me wealth, if you give me status, if you give me power, if you give me love, I will worship you. Here now, he's run out of any ability or power to manipulate. He has no bargaining chip anymore. He has nothing to come to the table with. His entire interpretive grid has been shattered. And now he realizes, Esau has stood always between me and my destiny, but I've been a fool all my life. Esau wasn't the problem. All of the wrestling that he's done with Esau all of his life, he's actually been wrestling with God all of his life. It's God he's been fighting. God says, let me go. Jacob says, I will not let you go. I need your blessing. Now remember, he stole the blessing. Jacob's already been blessed. But it's a man who has stolen the blessing, staring at the definition of blessing in the eye. And he's saying, you have to bless me. All this I've done on my own strength, on my own will. I'm clutching onto him. He says, you, I need your blessing. I need your name. He says, what is your name? I need your name. The problem was Jacob's name. The problem was him. 
His anger towards God, his resentment towards God, his vindictiveness towards other people, his addiction to his rights, his addiction to his history, his past, his pedigree. All his life he's been coming from, his, coming from behind, living up to his name, Deceiver. And here's this pivotal moment in verse 27. The man says, what is your name? What is your name? The first time Jacob was asked that question, he had disguised himself as another person. And his father Isaac, the holder of the blessing, says, who are you? What is your name? Jacob lies to him to get the blessing. He says, I am Esau, your firstborn. Now, staring at the face of God, his name is Deceiver. His name is Deceiver. And if you understand the the dramatic implications of that, it brings you back to a more deeper prophecy. Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman, the descendant of the woman, the son of the woman, will crush the head of the deceiver. And he's staring at the seed, the seed of the woman. And the man asks him, what is your name? And he confesses, I am the deceiver. I am him. I am the one who is to be crushed. I am the one. I am the liar. I am the thief. All my life, that's what I've been doing. That's who I am. I've been doing it for the blessing. This time he's clutching at the leg of the person who basically has destroyed his life in one touch of a finger. Jacob was the seed of the promise, but he was literally staring at the promise himself. And his name, his name conjures up that prophecy. And he's honest. And he's surrendered. And he's desperate. Until this point, Jacob was not convinced, you know, of the promise. Obviously, he didn't trust God enough to just wait and just trust and depend. He, he's, he grew, my guess is he probably waited a little while and he's impatient. And so he has to take it. How many of us live that way? We pray, and then we just take matters into our own hands the very next day. That's our lives. Jacob's saying, that's who I am. I have been foolish. I'm broken, and I'm an idiot. You are true beauty. But you know what I did? It took two eyes. I worked 14 years to claim beauty for myself. You are ultimate wealth. You are the true riches, and yet what I've been doing is I've been stealing all my life, stealing from my family, my uncle, my father, my brother. And it's left me manipulative, and it's left me vindictive, and it's hurt people, and it's left me homesick and desperate. You are the true blessing. But I've been lying and cheating my way into other people's approval all my life, and now I need you. I just need your name. I need your name. In other words, I want to see you. I want to know you because I see your face. I want to know you. It's the very same thing that Moses, Moses, when he approached God, he said, I want to see your glory. Jacob was saying, I can't go back to the way I was. I can't go back. These things are never going to satisfy me. All the other things that I have, I have those things. They're not going to satisfy me any longer. I wrestled with you. I need your blessing. I'm going to limp for the rest of my life. My life is utterly changed. I need your blessing. You are the new center in my life. I've been miserable, I realize, in my life up until now. In other words, I would rather die seeing you 
than be blind to you with all the things that I have and all the things I've amassed. I was so shallow. Up until this point, I thought Esau was the source of all my problems. I'm foolish. I've been wrestling you all my life. In my guilt, in my shame, in my desires, my wants, my pursuits. I've been building my spiritual cosmic resume all my life. It's you I've been wrestling all my life. And yet, although you are the source of all my problems, you are my provision, and you are my solution. Now, the one thing we haven't resolved, it's always confused me in this passage. And if you're thinking what I'm thinking, it's who won the match? Who won the match? How is it that God could not overcome Jacob? I've struggled with this for years. How is it that God could not overcome Jacob? Jacob, you know, he's trying to win by overpowering God. But God says, you've won. In fact, he gives him a whole new name. He says, your name will no longer be deceiver. You will be marked by the one, as one who struggled with me. You struggled with God all your life, and you've won. How can God say that? You know, you've been wrestling me all your life. And look, with a flick of a thing, I just touch you and you've basically, your life just completely falls apart. And yet, you're a winner. You were a loser, Jacob. You were a deceiver. You're supposed to be crushed. But you are a winner. Your name actually means victor. You You have overcome. How does he do that? God intentionally was keeping his power down. Obviously, if he didn't keep his power down, we would have lost Jacob. We would have lost all of his sons. There would be no redemption for the world. God, in his love and his grace, in his heart for Jacob, in his heart for man, says, I will purposely underpower myself so that you will overpower me. You know, Jacob, has been re- he realized he's been working for the blessing all of his life. He's been wrestling against God, you know, only to realize that God is the blessing. The blessing is knowing who he is. The blessing is seeing his face. You see this in Numbers chapter 6. It's summed up in one verse, right? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you, shine upon you, and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. All three passages in that sentence, mean the same thing. It's called the beatific blessing, the benediction. That's what you hear at the end of worship service many times. It's the beatific blessing, the blessing of knowing that God is shining his face on you. Jacob is experiencing literally the beatific vision of God. And he is a new name, verse 28. It's remarkable, remarkable. God is saying, you've been wrestling me and you have a new name. And it's, it's, you didn't get it by just simply overpowering me. It became when you became weak, when you surrendered, when you've given up all that you are. I've taken away anything that you can bolster yourself with to overpower me. I've wiped you away. I've smited you in a way. I've, overpowered, I, I, I've won through your surrender. But in your surrender, you're the victor. You have overcome. You are declared the winner. How can God do that? Jacob says, what is your name? God says, why do you ask me my name? Let me go. You can't can't see my face. And Jacob later calls the place Peniel, 
because I saw God face to face. Yet I saw God face to face, and I was spared. He only saw a glimpse, but the glimpse was sufficient. And it's incredibly symbolic and representative of that beatific vision. The sun rises above Jacob, it says. The sun rises above Jacob as he now, he's, he's literally limping. He's maimed and he's limping. Broken man heading towards his brother now. There's no more fear. Up until, if you see the early part of chapter 32, verse, he's, there's a lot of fear. There's no more fear. Think about it. If you see God face to face and you've been spared, nothing's going to scare you. He's seen God. He's experienced true spiritual reality, spiritual truth before him. And it's changed his life. He's not afraid. He's now going to face Esau. God has come near. And his face is shown on Jacob. Now, last point. This is actually a very quick point. How does this resolve our lives? Because our lives, our lives are a wrestle. Very quick lessons. First, we're all wrestling with God. How do you know you're wrestling with God? Because you blame other people, because you have self-pity, and it's killing you, and, and uh, we blame the world. We blame the world for all of our problems. That's how you know you're wrestling with God. We think the problem is Esau. Every one of us in this room has an Esau in our lives. And we say, this is the reason why I'm miserable. This is the reason why I'm struggling all the time in my life. God is using your Esau's, your circumstances, to show you who you really are. Your weakness your utter weakness, your utter brokenness, that spiritually we're maimed. We're powerless, even at our best. The Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 7, he says, even when I'm at my best, sin is right there. Sin is right there. We're broken. The thing that you thought was the source of your problems, the thing that's making you tired and weary, it's just God's way of saying, wake up. Wake up. Number two, that realization, waking up, is never easy. It's not like you wake up and you hear a voice, wake up. It's, you know, cosmically, it's time for you to spiritually awaken. I mean, there is the Spirit who works. God is active in your life, but it's always painful. It's usually very, very painful. Jacob has a limp for the rest of his life. He is in excruciating pain when he's wrestling God, and yet it's a sign of him being spared. How many times have you said, you know, I have lived this way all my life. And then I got broken. God broke me in my circumstances, in my suffering. And it was absolutely, incredibly painful. And some of us, I don't want to downplay the pain that we've experienced in our lives. Incredible pain. But years later, what do you say? It's amazing, but if you catch yourself, I'm thankful. This had to happen. Otherwise, I would never have woken up. It had to have happened in my life. If you leave those wounds untreated, what happens? It becomes the seeds of guilt and shame, and those things will destroy you. They will corrode your soul. It will be the seeds of envy and covetousness, and those things will corrode your soul. You're going to constantly be searching and pursuing and stealing and lying and cheating your way into getting a blessing. But here, if you, if you take those wounds you know, and see that it's God's way of showing us that we've been running all our lives, and instead of negotiating with God, coming to God and recognizing that He is not our enemy, He is a surgeon, and He is a faithful, skillful surgeon, the best surgeon. He's removing a tumor. And it's painful at first. You're going under the knife. But he's skillful. And he's loving. And he is father. And as a result, you can trust. 
When you come to that realization, you're going to realize a few things. You've woken up, but you'll have a limp. What's your limp? Do you have a limp in your life? The marker that you've been changed forever? How does that look? How's your walk? Thirdly, Jacob, Jacob realizes who he is, and he says, I'm just going to hold on. You know what that is? That's called prayer. He says, you got to bless me. He's just clutching on. It's all he's got. Prayer is our realization that the only thing that we need is for God to be personal in our lives. We just want God to, to draw near. That's the only thing. All these other things, all the other blessings in our lives, they're blessings. We can enjoy them. You don't reject them or deny them, but the one thing that you need is God's presence. You need spiritual reality. That's what's going to give you rest in the soul. It's going to give rest in the heart. Once you meet God's face, you don't fear. You're not going to be afraid. Do not be afraid is a phrase that's used throughout the New Testament. God's speaking to his people. Do not be afraid, he says. Trust, dependence, surrender, and hold on. That's prayer. That's why we pray. You don't, if you've been praying to make a negotiation with God, that's not, the, that's not what prayer is. Until you recognize how utterly weak we are, you will never truly pray. Lastly, Jacob, he deserved to die. He's the deceiver. But he was merely touched. And the, the pain that he experienced was, you know, was God not overcoming him, actually. God maimed him, but it was actually to save him. Jacob, later on, if you read the letter, he's a changed man forever. And actually, he has tremendous joy in his identity, who he is in the Father. And you'll see that later, later on in his demonstrations as he looks upon his descendants and their sons. Now, if God came in power, he would have been smited, but he actually just merely touches his thigh. The thigh was a symbol of power, which means what he's saying is, I've wiped away everything that you see as a sense of power in your life. But you know why it was a sense of power? Because it was the sign, it was the loins. It was a sign of his descendants. What God was saying to Jacob as he threw out his leg, it was not an arbitrary act. He didn't paralyze him from the neck down. Arbitrarily, he paralyzed his leg from his loins. Why? What he's saying is, you were just getting a touch, but one of your descendants will get the full force of my hand. One of your descendants will get the full force of all of my wrath. It was a sign of his descendants. You will be spared, but one day the full wrath, my full anger will fall on one of your descendants. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 to 5. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Centuries later, you have Jesus, God's own son. He'd be smitten by God on the cross. On the cross, Jesus, he receives the death blow of God. Just like God was gracious by coming to us in weakness, he came to Jacob in weakness, Jesus came in weakness, utter weakness. Jesus Christ limited himself, and he prevailed, just like Jacob prevailed. He wins by losing. Jesus, the greater Jacob, becomes utterly weak, and on the cross, what do you see? You don't see the sun rising above Jesus' head. There were clouds. There was a storm. Literally, on the cross, there was darkness and an earthquake. There was a storm. Jesus is literally riding the hurricane on the cross. 
He's literally riding the storm on the cross. It became completely dark. He's completely weak. And what's happening? He's on the cross. And he's wrestling. He's wrestling with God. If Jacob's hip was merely wrenched by a touch, imagine what it feels like to have the entire full force wrath of God on you. That's what Jesus was experiencing on the cross. On the cross, Jesus is wrestling with the full weight of God's strength. Jacob, it was merely God restraining himself, and it took all night. Jesus, in that moment, on the cross, wrestling with the full weight of God's wrath on him. The full weight of God's justice. The full weight of God's strength. Not for the blessing. Jesus had the blessing so that he could empty himself of the blessing so that he could surrender the blessing. And when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is this. If Jacob received a beatific blessing, God showing his face on Jacob, what he's saying is, now God has turned his face away from me. I have received the opposite of the beatific blessing. I am cursed. I am ultimately cursed. I'm utterly cursed. We receive the benediction. Why? Because Jesus received the malediction on the cross. He's suffering that. But do you know, he was still hanging on. He was still hanging on. Hebrews chapter 12, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He held on. Not for the blessing to come to him, but so that a blessing will come to you. In your wrestling with God, we can experience God. We can experience deep spiritual truth and reality about ourselves, about who God is, and his incredible grace and his love for us. And Jacob, he was saved through the weakness of God. Jacob was saved. We are saved through the weakness of Christ. God's exact representation, God's exact radiance, his son, in an ultimate way, once and for all. The only way a holy God can be loving is by becoming weak. Jesus stood in our place, the full weight of God's wrath, and he became weak. He surrendered. That's why he says, it's done. It is finished. It's over. That's why he says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Friends, in a short moment, we're going to be leaving this place. And we're here to celebrate the launch of Metro Presbyterian Church. But, you know, we as a launch team, I've trained this over the last month to downplay that. Because we're really here to celebrate the goodness and the faithfulness of God and what he has done. That's what you cannot downplay. That's something you cannot downplay. Because it will change you through and through. You take that truth, you plant it into your heart. That we have an identity, we have new names in Christ. We have struggled with God and we've overcome. You're a winner. If you're celebrating anything else, you're still fighting Esau, wrestle with God. Focus. Argue with him. Be countered by him. Encounter him. Assess your pain. Look at your pain. Take a step back and look at your pain. But see the cross. Will you see the cross? Will you look to the cross where Jesus experienced the ultimate storm, the full weight of God's wrath for you? Let that move you. Let that change you. Let that change you forever. Then God will be personal. And then you, like Jacob, will experience joy and rest. We're going to take a moment to experience that rest together.
Will you pray with me? Let's pray.